You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show... We are raising it with the Emirati authorities at the highest level. My right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, is urgently seeking a call with the Foreign Minister, Abdullah bin Zayed. With a British researcher jailed for life for spying in the UAE, we'll be asking how much influence diplomacy can have in helping resolve the nation's growing list of crises on the world stage. My guests, Somnath Batabul and Mary Dijewski, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including it is five years on since the Maidan protests rocked Ukraine and ignited a war in the country's east. What has changed, if anything? Plus, an American self-styled missionary is shot dead by bow and arrow off the remote north of Sentinel Island. How do we protect ever-threatened, isolated communities? All to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House on a chilly evening in London. My guest today, Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and for The Guardian, and Somnath Patabial, a lecturer in media, in development and international journalism at SOAS in London. Welcome both to the program. We begin this evening by looking at diplomacy in the case of Matthew Hedges, a British researcher sentenced to life in prison in the United Arab Emirates on Wednesday on charges of spying for the British government. The 31-year-old Durham University PhD student was arrested at the Dubai airport last May after a two-week researching trip to research trip on the UAE's security strategy for his thesis. The diplomatic response from the UK has been swift in condemning the verdict, but what real influence can diplomacy have in a situation like this? Mary, perhaps uh, we'll start with you here. Uh, What kind of teeth do you think the Foreign Office has in a situation like this to, to actually pressure the UAE? Well, this is a very, very interesting case, um, and it really looks as though the British have rather misread things, um, because it seemed that until um, the life sentence um, was imposed just a couple of days ago, um, that they were quite confident that their sort of communications through diplomatic channels um, were going to achieve something, if not, if, say, a, a short prison sentence or um, some sort of additional release. Um, But that's not what happened. And what almost happened was the opposite of that, which you sort of sense that this has rather shocked um, the Foreign Office and British diplomats. Mm. Um, But at the same time, uh, you know, I have to say, I followed quite a few of the cases where um, British citizens have been in difficulty in one way or another, sometimes dual nationals, as um, the case with um, Iran, Um, sometimes mostly British citizens um, who've somehow fallen afoul of the local authorities or been taken hostage, as we've seen in the past. And there's something that all these cases have in common, which is that the British traditionally prefer softly, softly diplomacy over a very long time in the hope that they'll achieve a result. This infuriates the relatives um, who look across at places like France and the United States and see 
other diplomats kicking up a much bigger fuss, encouraging the relatives to kick up a fuss, um, and um, as they see it, actually achieving the result much faster um, and more effectively. So there's a long, long tradition of complaints about this. Uh, Somnath, uh, Hedge's wife, Daniela Tejada, has said the Foreign Office ignored her early request for help. Uh, when normally do they get involved then, if we're talking, you know, if we take up Mary's point here that, that they're very soft in their approach? Well, as, as Mary correctly pointed out, probably the UK is quite shocked at mm. what has happened. Uh, and I don't know if there's a connection, but UK's tabling of resolution in the Yemen war recently makes this almost, you know, the gentleman a pawn at the moment. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia are playing a very difficult game in Yemen. And there could be a possibility that there will be a exchange is perhaps the wrong word, but mm. UK has to back off a bit on Yemen to get a release. So these are big diplomatic wars which are played out mm. and, um, you know, um, individual lives become mere pawns uh, in this in this game. Well, I keep thinking of um, of the case of Otto Warmbier, who was the American who was jailed and beaten in North Korea, sent back to the States where he died of his injuries. But that was a very different relationship, a, a time very frosty between North Korea and the U.S. It's, it's nothing like that in this case. Is it? No, I think um, with North Korea, at least at that stage, um, there was really nothing um, for the United States to lose. Um, I think in this case, I absolutely agree um, that what we may have here, and indeed what we may have with Iran, is something akin to a hostage situation or a, a pawn in a much bigger play, um, that the countries concerned um, realise that they've got somebody valuable here that is worth possibly trading against something else. Um, and the British sponsorship of the um, UN Security Council resolution on Yemen won't have helped. Um, but there are other things that may Maybe maybe UAE or maybe some of its allies would also like, um, and the British may be very well aware of this. Um, this is something else they tend to not to let on in public. They say, "Oh, of course, you know, there'll be no dealing, there'll be no bargains," but this is exactly why very often um, people are held. Samnath, would you take that uh, point up? Uh, would you agree with Mary there? Yeah, I mean, I mean that was the point that mm. we're just trying to make that, you know, um, this gentleman might have become a pawn in a bigger mm. game. But also, uh, unlike the North Korea-US scenario, uh, UAE has been a protectorate of the British. Uh, there's a bilateral trade of about 15 billion, you know, it's doubled from since 2011 to 2016. So there's a lot of things which are going on. Theoretically, what one country can do in legal terms to get somebody out of another country, I mean, there's not much leeway uh, there. But as diplomacy has always worked, and the British diplomacy, especially the John Le Carre style, is mm. quite, quite soft diplomacy, get in and you know, work things through, unlike what Mary says the US mm. and the French do. Um, but there are a lot of levers which the UK can pull here. And we'll see in the coming weeks, and hopefully quickly, that how the UN resolution thing works out how pressure can be put through the industry and trade mm. um, and uh, hopefully a resolution can um, can be seen quickly. Well, it's been a, a tricky few months um, for the foreign office here. Of course, we had uh, dealings with Russia in the Skripal case and then Saudi Arabia and the murder, murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, this is quite different though, isn't it? 
Oh, this is very different. Uh, I mean, given the reports that we are getting at the moment, there seems to be no way that this gentleman is involved in spying, especially given the country's UAE, where, again, it's, it's an ally. There's no need probably to send a student in to spy on security matters, which could be probably done over a phone call or a dinner. Uh, so it seems a tenuous connection. And the idea that he has confessed, uh, again, uh, seems very difficult to digest uh, at this point of time. Also, I mean, we simply don't know what um, duress may have been yes, put on course. him and his wife mm. has been um, talking about the conditions, solitary confinement um, and drugging that yeah. she says um, he were imposed on him. Um, but I think also there's another aspect which might just be a footnote um, that you sort of sense, and this may be just a very London um, perspective, that maybe um, people out there feel that the UK is so preoccupied with Brexit that its diplomatic clout is maybe being diminished by leaving the European Union and that this is something that is already being exploited. Mm. Is this a political crisis then for May? Does it just come at a really bad time? <laughs> I mean, how many well, it piles it on, doesn't yeah. it? Um, it's hard to see how things could get any worse, but this does seem to be something that they hadn't anticipated. Mm. Well, last week the UAE held the uh, so-called World Tolerance Summit, part of its <laughs> plan to brand itself as a progressive place which cares about human rights. Um, and then this sentencing, literally a week later, the timing really doesn't seem to fit, does it, Somnath? Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, uh, the public image which uh, UAE would want to portray and this, again, this is why the possible connection that what has happened with UK's stance on Ye U Yemen really comes into play because hmm. probably this was not anticipated. And suddenly last week when the UK took a definitive stance, UAE has retaliated. Rather than this being a start, this has been a, in a chess game, it's a retaliation. Hmm. And it's also, I mean, so many things are possibly connected, um, that the Yemen draft resolution is connected with the Khashoggi case yes. in the sense it was a response to that to try and put pressure on Saudi Arabia. Um, so there's, the, the, there's so many other things that are involved in what looks like quite a simple bilateral affair. Uh, certainly a, a complicated uh, set of diplomatic uh, uh, diplomatic issues that uh, does very much read like a spy novel uh, at this point. Uh, we'll turn our attention now to Ukraine, where this week marks five years since the Maidan protests in Ukraine, which eventually ousted a pro-Moscow government, but in uh, terms sparked a war in the country's east and led to Russia annexing Crimea. Mary, perhaps we'll start with you here. Tell us where Ukraine finds itself uh, today, uh, compared to the country it was five years ago? Well, uh, I was actually quite surprised when I saw this to, to think that it was, to me, only five years. It seems really to me quite a lot longer than that. Um, I've been to Ukraine quite regularly over that time, and there have certainly been a lot of changes. Um, in the immediate year after the Maidan, um, there was um, an enormous um, a, a sort of self-recognition of um, the, the price of independence. Um, there were the pictures of the people they called the martyrs, the people who'd been killed um, on the Maidan. And there was very much a sense of um, feeling a part of Europe at the same time as being beleaguered. Um, a lot of that um, has 
diminished considerably over the years. And if you go to Kiev now, if you go to the west of the country, um, you'll find that it feels, or at least it feels to me, very normal. Everybody's mm. going about their business um, and it feels, I mean, not, not necessarily a flourishing country, but it does not feel like a country at war. Whereas the further east you get, obviously that, that, that starts to change. Um, the other thing that's happened is that the sort of exhilaration that was felt in the year or so after the Maidan, um, that's really settled into a combination of um, quite some resignation um, and disappointment. Um, and this is sort of particularly regrettable in a way because the very same thing happened after the Orange Revolution. And after Maidan, um, everybody in Ukraine, especially the young people who'd been involved in the protest, said, we won't let that happen again. We won't lose the momentum. We won't get disillusioned. We'll carry it through. Mm. And yet, five years on, um, it doesn't quite seem that way. Well, the initial protests that eventually led to a uh, quite a revolution there were rooted in the division uh, felt between Ukraine's allegiances to Europe and to Russia. With the Brexit fallout now in Europe, populism in, in all kinds of different countries and the headaches for the EU, all the headaches the EU is facing, does leaning towards Brussels for people in Ukraine some now, do you think that still is appealing? Uh, given the choices, I think yes. Uh, on one hand, you have uh, Russia's very heavy hand on Ukraine and um, the possibility of, um, I mean, they've been trying for a long time. I mean, in the last five years, and it just seems like a long time, more than 1.5 million people have traveled to Europe, which was not there before. You know, freedom of travel is a major thing. Mm. So again, you have these. But also what Ukraine is probably finding out, and I don't have Mary's firsthand experience there, but that the old oligarchs are very difficult to push off. You know, you wanted a complete overhaul of the judicial system. It hasn't happened. There have been incremental movements. But uh, what the West would perhaps like to see, mm. that hasn't happened. And, and for justifiable reasons. There's a movement. Uh, young people do want to kind of turn towards Europe. But Russia has plays a very difficult proxy war there in, in all kinds of levels. You know, their movement in Georgia, the kind of improvised banking system they have all over all over the you know, uh, place. So it's a difficult one. Mm. And to tackle that um, and remove the old stalwarts completely for a new government, it's a difficult one. Um, Russia's presence in the east of Ukraine, Mary, is, is constantly being denied by the Kremlin. How do we analyze that influence realistically? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is so difficult and so complicated. Um, I think one of the things that's happened um, is that um, the line which once really went vertically down um, between two halves of Ukraine, as between whether they looked west or whether they looked east, that line has shifted very much to the east so that you could now say that two-thirds, three-quarters of Ukraine's population would feel themselves to be looking west. Um, and that's quite an isolating factor for the people who live in the east. I think there's also... Um, a disillusionment um, that in a way, you know, Russia hasn't been 
that assertive in the east, but neither has Kiev been able, as it were, to reintegrate those the, those areas. And there was the, the, there's been talk in the last few months saying well, the problem there is actually nobody wants this area, that it's just too difficult, it's too divided, it's got um, obsolete industry, um, it's going to be a huge cost um, for whoever um, tries to govern it, um, and it's going to be sort of permanently discontented. I, I sometimes um, compare it with, say, Northern Ireland during the Troubles and the three-cornered relationship there um, between the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland and um, London, Westminster. Um, there's something very similar in the dynamic that you can see between um, the Kiev-governed Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine and Russia. Hmm. Um, all that said, um, most of Ukraine is not at war. Um, it's absolutely right about the oligarchs proving very, very difficult to shift. And there have been all sorts of efforts um, sponsored by, advised by um, largely European Union <coughs> to reform Ukraine and to minimise, if not exclude, um, corruption. And this really, it's worked to an extent, but the problem is that in removing corruption from the biggest um, part of the economy, which is the energy sector, um, all sorts of measures have been taken to do that, but that has displaced it. It hasn't eliminated it. Um, and that's, um, so they've still got the problem of corruption and international financial organisations are making more loans to Ukraine conditional to a large extent on reducing corruption. Hmm. Can I come in and ask Mary yeah, yeah. a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love that. Mary, this uh, recent uh, deployment of British troops, I, I was wondering how you would place that against the massive uh, kind of presence Russia has. And I was wanting to pick your brains yeah. on it. Um, there's something, I mean, it's a very, very interesting point because the um, the Defence Secretary, I think, met his um, uh, Ukrainian counterpart um, today, yesterday in London. Um, and the British promised another 100 um, yeah, the numbers seem kind of, um, and also that mm. there would be a warship that would go and patrol from time to time in the Black Sea um, with a crew of 70. Um, now, this um, obviously is not a huge number of um, military, um, but I think what is often not realized is the extent of Western and specifically NATO involvement in Ukraine, um, not obviously in a combat capacity, not even in any sort of um, frontline capacity. They're there officially to train Ukrainian forces. Um, and um, what has slightly surprised me is that Moscow hasn't kicked up more of a fuss about this. Um, and the reason, I think, um, even though you know a lot of people would disagree with me, is that Russia has essentially written off Ukraine. Russia understands that it's lost Ukraine. The problem is that it wants some terms, as it were, for that being acknowledged. And in my view, those terms would include a recognition that Crimea is now irrevocably part of Russia, plus um, stability um, and a proper border in the east. And I think Russia would settle for that. I don't think it wants territorial expansion in the east. But the problem is that the whole of the Western world is really lined up to oppose Russia's permanent permanent um, occupation, annexation of Crimea. So at the moment, that's not going anywhere. 
Is that a dead issue? Is it... It's still just about a live issue. Um, the Minsk agreement, there's two Minsk agreements um, which were supposed to um, start a peace process for eastern Ukraine. Um, they've all got stalled. Um, but, it, I mean, it is my view that Moscow wants a settlement. A lot of people don't agree with that. They think that Moscow actually wants um, to have what's called a sort of frozen conflict or a simmering mm. conflict away in the east, which gives it leverage over that region. Um, my view is that Russia doesn't want that at all. It wants stability and it wants a proper border. Um, but it also wants um, constitutional guarantees in terms of language and sort of way of life. Um, for the mainly Russian speakers in the East. And at the moment, Kiev hasn't been able to... Uh, it hasn't really wanted and it hasn't been able to guarantee that. And the whole thing at the moment is on ice, largely because next year there are big elections in Ukraine, starting with the presidential election. So I don't think we're going to see any progress before that. Fascinating analysis. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Mary Dijewski, and Somnath Batabia. Coming up next, we look at the case of an American self-styled missionary killed off North Sentinel Island. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Somnath Batamiel and Mary Dijewski. North Sentinel Island, one of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which lie isolated around 800 miles east of India in the Bay of Bengal, is rarely heard of in the news. And that's the way its inhabitants, inhabitants sorry, the Sentinelese, wish to keep things. Rare attempts at contact from the outside world with its population are often met with a violent response. And that includes uh, during the huge tsunami when uh, rescue helicopters helicopters came near, I understand. And that was the case when John Allen Chow, an American citizen, attempted to access the island on Friday last week. He was killed by arrow fire. It's raised questions about whether enough was done to ensure the Sentinelese people are left in peace and whether appropriate measures were in place to ensure misguided attempts at contacts are kept to a minimum. Uh, Somnath, tell us a little bit more about India's relationship with North Sentinel Island. It's quite an 
interesting one. Well, it's part of India. So, yeah. you know, the relationship is with, uh, uh, as it should be with an uh, island mm. which is at its periphery. Now, um, most of Andaman and Nicobar Islands are places where tourists can visit and people stay there. There are certain parts which, um, and North Sentinel is one of them, where access is very difficult and people are not welcome. This is known. Mm. Um, these people have been, you know, there for thousands of years. They do not want contact. The, as, you know, a death is a tragedy, but the missionaries going in into for the last six to seven hundred years in different parts of India has created loads of social problems and trouble. This is documented. Now, the North Sent- Sentinelese, they're just about a hundred people that want to be left in peace. The problem is twofold. One is the missionary zeal, which comes through, and this has happened all over the world. The other is the tourism problem run by the local uh, fishing mafia mm. and who encourage tourists, if enough money is given, to go to these islands. Um, just a couple of years back, two fishermen were killed, again, by bow and arrows. But an anthropologist who have gone there about three or four years back, and now they've largely left that place alone, they have they have not been harmed. Hmm. So the problem is a nexus between tourism, lot of money tourism, fishermen who try and get t- tourists onto these islands, and people who push back. Uh, as I say, as people have already commented, that it's quite dangerous for people to go there, especially because they're remote people. You bring in any kind of germs, health issues happen, mm. you can, you know, a population will be wiped off. So they want to be alone. And there is no reason for um, missionaries or tourists with any good intentions or, or not to land up there. So this is one. The second is that do the Indian government provide enough information mm. to stay away from this? Perhaps on the website, it's definitely there. I have checked that these are islands which we are told not to go so you've obviously made a very private journey. You've paid fishermen and you've paid poor people, actually, who do this for a, have been doing this and have you know, been making money. So you've accessed this in ways which perhaps are, is not advisable. Hmm. Having said all this, of course, this is a tragedy. Uh, it's a tragedy from, you know, which one should learn from. And as the government has done, it's got, the government has a very hands-off, eyes-on policy towards this. You know, they keep a very quiet watch. And even during the tsunami, there was no massive influx of, you know, uh, food parcels or, you know, kind of health visits. They just kind of left these people alone. Mm. And they've been, as I, you know, as I said, they've been alone for centuries, even before India became a nation, before the British came. And if this is the way they want to stay, perhaps it's better. Has this led to to more warnings in India about uh, about going to places like this and the importance of of leaving people uh, alone? Because there will be some that are calling for some sort of justice. But what w- what would that look like? Who is to blame then? The fishermen. I mean, I mean justice would yeah. be to leave these people alone again. Yeah. In a, as I said, these are um, they have managed to live without modern contact for centuries. Mm. Uh, so you know, it's unjust on our part, modern civilization, to try and bring them into our hegemonic fold. So um, that's one side of the story. Um, again, obviously, when, he, when this gentleman has traveled, he has not read up properly on what is right and what is wrong. And if you go back the last five to 600 years of missionaries in India, both from America and the UK, 
there have been a lot of unwanted contact in remote areas, especially in the northeast of India, in mm. Arunachal Pradesh, in Assam, where they've been very successful. So the part of that zeal continues. And again, as I, I say this with a heavy heart. Somebody has died and it's, mm. and it's sad. But on a larger theoretical premise, it's something which needs to be avoided. Uh, it, it's very clear that the government has already said that we do not encourage any kind of access to these islands and perhaps mm. it's better to leave them alone. Mary, if, if we look around the world, there are a number of examples of, of, of smaller nations, of, of smaller tribes uh, that are constantly threatened by different things in the world. What do we make, though, of, of how India sort of approaches this in this in this hands-off approach, as, you know, compared to other places, perhaps? Well, I think in some ways it's almost surprising that it's been as sort of successful in those terms as it has been. Because while I, you know, I wouldn't sort of sign up to the, to the, missionary, to the missionary cause or to um, violating the, 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 the sort of peace and nature of islands and uh, remote territories like this, I do understand um, that the sort of passion and curiosity to get there because so few people do so few people have seen it and the difference between them and us is you know it's millennia of civilization mm. and just to get a glimpse just to see how they live you know i can understand why somebody would want to do that but anthropologists have done studies read up on them but perhaps you know some places need not be touched mm. <laughs> i mean yeah when we talk about learning something or you know allowing these people to protect their own culture and and to be left alone is there an argument that we, that we need to find something out about about these people through study well, as I said, you know, um, in the last 10 years, very few anthropologists have actually managed to go there. They have seen the, you know, um, basic huts where they live, how they cook, but they have backed off. Uh, mm. There has been no harm done just because I don't know why, but uh, there have been three or four of them who have landed up and then left them alone. So th there was minimal contact. It was understood that they didn't want to. Uh, they didn't come out in the open. Uh, the anthropologists were allowed to move around their settlement. They stayed for a couple of weeks and left. Uh, and that's it, uh, really. Um, should they be allowed? Shouldn't they be allowed? I think people should be allowed to live their own mm -hmm. lives. Uh, they do not harm us. or are, they're not, Neither are they curious about our lifestyles. And we might be curious about them, but we do not need to know everything. You know, mm -hmm. It's not a right given. And the government doesn't encourage it. Government doesn't provide you know, tourist uh, a safe passage there. Uh, it's very clearly mentioned in the Andaman and Nicobar website that there are certain parts you do not go to, and North Central is one of them. So it's like if, an, if I go to the U.S. and I'm told that do not go to certain parts of uh, mid-America, I would clearly follow that. You know, Texas might be off limits for me. Mm -hmm. and I would <laughs> Well, if nothing, perhaps uh, it puts the place back on the map for us and, and makes us realize that uh, perhaps the world is still big. There's lots we, we don't know and perhaps we don't need to know. Uh, well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Mary Dijewski, Samnath Batavial, thank you so much for joining us here on Midori House. Today's show produced by Tom Hall, research by Barbara Mamoni, our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. More music next. And then at 1900 hours, it is The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. We'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That is at 2200 London time with Paul Osborne. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 in London. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye.